This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Um, uh, tonight we are learning Ilunishmat Avram ben Chaim Yehuda and Yechaskel ben Avraham. So tonight we're continuing in our series on Emuna, and tonight is uh, the idea is to try to solidify some of the topics. Just make sure my. My other camera audio is off. Hold on one second, guys. Okay, so the the idea of the idea of this uh, this week, Bizlat Hashem, is to try to solidify the concept of a greater picture is being painted over here, and we're just little pawns in the scene. the The concept the Matnas Chalko brings us down that the concept of trust of emunah is someone who's supposed to be like a baby in the hands of its mother. Like that contentness. There's like nothing else to worry about. There's nothing else to be bothered about. Everything is nice. Everything is smooth. Everything is great. However, says the Matnas Chalko that the mother needs to like do certain things for the baby. You know, it has to bathe the baby. It has to feed the baby. It sometimes has to give the baby shots. Uh, you know, so there are different things that the baby does that doesn't initially sense that it's for the good. And in fact, it, it's bothered by it. It doesn't. It doesn't like uh, you know this. What the mother is doing. So the baby doesn't know. But in essence, we know that the mother is doing everything for the best for the baby. In the same sense, that's how we're supposed to live our life. That we're the baby, and God is sort of to speak the mother, and everything that God does is for the best. And that's something that we need to you know, strive to work for, especially because when you look at life, life could be very bumpy. It's not always smooth sailing. So how is someone supposed to live in a contentness way of life that God is taking care of everything? There's a greater picture if there's a lot of things that are not so, you know, nice and dandy. So the Chafetz Chaim brings down a story that there was once a uh, very wealthy man and he had everything going for him. He had everything that he wanted except for one thing. He did not have any children. So he davened, he prayed, he prayed, he gave charity. He did everything that he could. He went to all the rabbis. And then finally, after many, many years, God granted his, pr- his prayers and answered him, and he received the son. Now, this son, as the child grew up, the child grew to be, you know, not so healthy and, you know, was predisposed to certain illnesses. Until the father decided that he's going to bring him to this specialist. And the specialist looks, investigates, and tells him that this kid, he is not allowed to have fatty meat. Anything that with fatty meat, he has to run away like poison. Cannot go on it. So the father's like, okay, if this is what needs to be, then this one needs to be. And one day he was out, to, uh, he was going to travel away for a business trip. And he tells his, you know, instruction, make sure to keep this kid away from fatty meat. And as, you know, as the father leaves, so the servants in the house were not as, you know, strict in their, you know, the way that they would have otherwise, you know, treated the house when the boss is not around. And, you know, the little kid slipped a little bit and he found some meat and he started eating it. And he immediately became very sick. And when the father came back, he saw that this this boy was, you know, was on the threshold of death. So he quickly runs over and he calls over the specialist and the specialist says, what did you do? I told you not to feed him any, any fatty meat. What are you doing? He obviously ate fatty meat and that's why he's so sick. So the father went and the father says, please, just do whatever you can and I promise you that this boy will never leave my sight. I will personally watch him to make sure that he won't eat any fatty meat. And the specialist went, you know, gave him some medication, did some treatments to him and, you know, brought the son back to health. Now this father did not leave, did not go anymore on those business trips. He always made sure to stay home so he could supervise his son to make sure that he doesn't touch any fatty meat. Now, a couple of months go by and his father makes a large banquet for his family and friends. And, you know, there's a huge spread. He's a very wealthy guy. So there's plenty of meat. There's plenty of cake. And this little son walks in and he sees, you know, this delicious red meat and he runs over it and he starts to go and, you know, put it in his mouth. His father sees it because his father's always watching and he runs towards him and he quickly hits the, the, you know, the, the meat out of the kid's hands and he grabs his kid and he brings him out of the banquet hall. Now all the guests are looking be like, what a... What a father is that? Can't the kid enjoy a little bit? Why can't the kid go and enjoy a little bit of meat, a little bit of cake? And they look at the father, it's very cruel. But in essence, what the father was doing, the father was saving this kid's life. That meat would have been the destruction of this kid. And that is what the Chafetz Chaim says God does. God does. Sometimes, you know, we want certain things. We want that meat. We want this certain, you know, shiduch. We want this certain panasa. We want this certain house. We want this certain business. And God knocks it out of our hands. And we're like, God, why? I'm doing so good. 
Because we don't know the big picture. The big picture is that the, that house or that, uh, you know, that panasa or that shiduch will be the end of you. It could destroy you. So God, who is the master plan, can see it. The guests in that banquet, they looked at the father as being a, you know, d- disgusting person who couldn't even allow his child to, to have some pleasures of red meat. But little did they know that the father was saving the kid's life. Now, when one goes through difficulties, it's difficult to realize that there is a master plan behind it. Like right now, you know, we're able, I'm able to go and say it, but when push comes to shove, and when things really go down, then it's like, okay, wait a minute, you know, is there a, you know, master plan? It's hard to internalize it. Rav Aaron of Kalim goes and says, you know, we're commanded to give every person the benefit of the doubt. So then he asks us, how come some, peop- some people sometimes are hesitant to give God the same benefit of the doubt? Just like when we go and we see someone doing that may look something that, that is incorrect, we're supposed to give that person the benefit of the doubt. So too, if God is doing something to us, we also have to go and give God the benefit of the doubt that obviously there's something else going on. And this is the way that you could always look through in life. Now imagine a guy who goes and he decides he's going to go pray with a minyan. And he gets into to the minyan, he parks his car, he goes and he prays for the first time in a really long time, unrelated to coronavirus, it's the first time in a really long time, and he comes out and there's a ticket on his, uh, you know, on his window shield. And he's like, come on. So there's two scenarios that he could play it out. There's one scenario that he could be, and he could be like, you know what? Because I overwent my, overcame my challenge and I went to pray with a minyan, now I'm go, I was supposed to receive some sort of suffering. So God, in his infinite mercy, went and gave me this suffering through this ticket. And that's it. That's one way to look at it. Meaning that the ticket was really a good thing for him. It actually helped him. There's another way of looking at it. And this is another way that people look at life. Be like, really God? You, are you serious? Like, I finally go and do what you ask. I pray with them, Yan, and now this is how you're going to go and you're going to treat me. You're going to go and you're going to give me a ticket. Same scenario, two different mindsets on how a person's supposed to go. And, the, you know, Rabbi Clinton goes says, you have to give God the benefit of the doubt, just like you give everybody else. So to you, if something, God forbid, happens, whether you're doing something right, whether you're doing something wrong, there is a master plan behind it. There is a reason. And even especially because we don't know the alternative. Oh, how important that, that line is. You never know the alternative. Imagine someone goes, books a flight, and uh, they get there, they do everything right. You know, they're like, a real, you know, like fly, they like arrive in the airport 16 hours beforehand. They check their luggage, you know, and those people that they wrap their luggage with like, you know, that, that, uh, you know, I don't even know what it's called. I don't know the purpose of it, the foil, whatever it is. And they go, they get there. Nothing is overweight. Everything, their ticket is, everything is perfect. And they get there. They're sitting, they're sitting by the, by the checking counter and they say, Oh, I'm sorry. This flight is overbooked. You've been, uh, you've been bummed to the next flight. And you're like, are you kidding me? I've done everything right. I came early. I purchased a ticket. I, everything was correct. And then what happens? You're sitting over there waiting another three, four hours for the next flight. This flight takes off. And then what all of a sudden, if something happens, you know, God forbid there's some sort of engine tro- trouble. And this plane ends up, God forbid, crashing into the sea with no survivors. Would you still be angry that you missed that flight? Or you'd be like, no, you should have all you know, I don't know what happened. I came over here and I almost got saved. Da, 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 da. And you could, the whole details would be like, oh, look how great God is. So this is the question that I ask. So, so are you only going to be happy if 300 people die on the plane and then you could see that God has a master plan? What happens if 300 people didn't die on the plane? The plane landed, say, plane landed early. <laughs> it wasn't even bad. It was, it was unbelievable. Everybody in plane got like free gold, whatever it is. Then it's not for the best because it's only when you can see the best. So we have to go. And live our life in a certain way that, number one, we don't know the alternative. We don't know what could have happened if there was another scenario that would have played out in our, you know, situation that we're dealing with. But even more so, that whether it looked like it was good and whether it looked like it was bad, which is really the concept of what we're going to be discussing tonight, there is a bigger picture in this, in this world of a story that we're living in our life. Now, Rabbi Victor Miller goes and brings down the, there was once a very wealthy Jew. He was in the clothing business and he used to work around the clock. He had a factory and he would get to the factory early, leave very late. He had, to, when he had to go and, and pray with him, he would have to go, you know, catch the earliest one and leave a little bit early so he can make it, you know, it, it just wasn't so spiritual, his business. Unfortunately, he was an honest guy, very well, you know, well-meaning, but the business took over his life. And uh, one day he makes a very, very large investment. He puts a few million dollars, all his money he puts into this investment. He was going to buy raw materials. And these raw materials are, you know, this, if, if this would have went, went through, it would have made him extremely wealthy. And because he put so much money in it, he took a very, he took out a very large insurance policy in it. 
and he puts it all in his in his factory in his warehouse, and and he leaves that night. There is some little fire that happens in the factory, and uh, there for some reason whatever caught on fire had tr- gave off tremendous amount of smoke, very very black smoke, which ended up ruining all the fabrics that he purchased, all those raw materials that he purchased for his biz- big business deal. So. He gets into the, you know, the fire department comes, takes out the fire, everything is good, everything, everybody's safe, no one's hurt. He calls, you know, he submits the claim to the to the insurance company, and the insurance company, they send down, you know, the, the person to come down to investigate. The guy investigates, says, listen, he says, your insurance policy, it only covers fire damage. Over here, there's smoke damage. We don't cover smoke damage. He's like, what are you kidding me? What's the difference? It's smoke. It's a fire. He was starting to go. He's like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, this is my whole, my, my, this is all my life's work right here. And he calls up his lawyer. He says, you got to help me out here. The lawyer comes, starts investigating, looks up all the agreements, and he says, there's nothing I could tell you, but um, you, you have no money left. You know, this is, you know, they're right. They don't have to pay you anything. Uh, only thing I tell you is declare bankruptcy. And he's like, what? And he's like, look, you could go and you could fight it. You could try, to, but it's going to cost you a tremendous amount in, you know, in, in, uh, uh, in bills whether it's from the lawyers or from anything else. And furthermore, you might, most likely you're not, you're not gonna win. My recommendation, declare bankruptcy and move on. So not knowing, not having anything else to do, he declared bankruptcy and he moved on in his life. However, the next day, after he declared bankruptcy, he finished all the paperwork. He had a little small pension that he was able to live off. Now what he was gonna do? He woke up, he's used to waking up early and going to sleep really late. So he woke up early. He went to pray in the same manner that he always goes to pray. But this time, why was he rushing out? So he decided he's going to stay. And he stayed and he opened up a Gemara, he opened up a Chumash, and he started learning. And he saw that he, you know, he started enjoying the learning. He started advancing in his studies. And as he started advancing in his, you know, in his learning, he also, the relationship with his wife started getting a little bit better. He had more time to spend with her. And a year goes by. And a year after the fire, this man, who was once very, very wealthy, made a Sudat he made a, a, a sort of a party of thanking God for what? For going and destroying the business. And he went and recited Nishmas at that party. And he said, thank you God for shutting down my factory. Because now I discovered Torah, I discovered Tefillah, and I discovered how to get along with other people. When we look at, you know, the, the way that he just looked at it, and in fact, there's a different ver- there's a different story very similar to this, by a person by the name of Rab Moshe. Rab Moshe was very wealthy, and he was extremely charitable, gave a lot of money to charity. And then one day he went totally bankrupt. And the friends couldn't grasp it, be like, what? This guy, you know, like, out of, he is such a righteous guy, He's so honest, so always gives so much charity. Why did he go, and why is he that he went bankrupt? And they went to Rab Chaim Velazhener, and they said, what's going on over here? And Rab Chaim didn't answer anything. This Rab Moshe went, he had, again, free time. Instead of surfing the internet, what he did was he went into the in Bet Midash and he started learning. And he discovered that he had a knack for it. He had a very good head. And he discovered that he loved it. And he started learning more and more and more. And this person, this Rab Moshe later became the Rab Moshe Salavechik, which means he was none other than the head of the prestigious dynasty of Brisk. You go and you would ask him, not in the next world, you ask him in this world. So was it good that you lost the money or was it not good that you lost the money? I can guarantee you he said it was a blessing that I lost the money. It was a blessing. And in fact, Rab Chaim Velazhe goes and says that he explained, he says that even though he gave so much tzedakah, this Rab Moshe did not have yet the merit to become such a great, a great, great Talmud Chacham, a great tzaddik, only until he lost his wealth and then through that he was able to grow through the Torah. That gave him the, the merit that would be able to go achieve what he achieved. You know, in life, sometimes we can see the big picture. And sometimes we don't see the big picture. Sometimes the big picture is not even for this world. Sometimes the big picture is for the next world. Sometimes we suffer and we don't even see why we suffered. And only later in the next world after 120, we realize that it was for our benefit, for our soul, not even for our body. I want to share with you something so amazing. No, it's not even, it's it's crazy. It's unbelievable. You just, whatever. It's really, really amazing. It's something from Rabbi Matis Yahu Solomon. He goes and he asks like this. He says some. When you look at the Torah, the amount of ink that the Torah puts on a certain story or a certain, uh, you know, lesson, the, the more ink, the more that we can learn from it. Meaning that the more the Torah expands about it, the more lessons, more, more vital lesson it holds for us. So we look at the Torah in, in general. You look at the five books of Moses. What is the majority of the ink that is used in the five books of Moses, it's used on Moshe Rabbeinu. You go through the Tziat Mitzrayim, the Exodus, you go to the Hal Sinai, giving of the Torah, you go through the 40 years of the desert, uh, you know, it covers roughly four out of the five books. 
let's go to the first book, to the book of Genesis. You, you know, it begins with the creation of the world, it goes through the flood, and then it goes through the about the patriarchs and the matriarchs. And those, says Rabbi Salman, are not so much. They're, they're, they're given space, but not a lot. What's given one of the most spaces in the Sefer Belashit? The story of Yosef, the story of Joseph. And you think about it, why is it covering so much? Because of this experience that, that Yosef went through is an experience throughout the, that, that the Jewish people could learn throughout the entire history. And furthermore, when the Avot went and they went through the, you know, their, their lives, they were individuals. But when Yaakov Avinu had the 12 tribes, all of a sudden that became a group, that became a small nation, that there was a, the nucleus literally of the nation. So there's a lot more to learn over here. And, and he's, Listen to how it goes and explains it. And I just want to, you know, for people that have been listening to to our classes for quite some time, we've spoken to Yosef, at, you know, extensively in different in different scenarios. And every time we try to learn something else. So listen how fascinating, and listen how many lessons you can learn from Yosef. The, the Mishnah, the Gemara in Bachot, page 54a, on the top, the Mishnah goes and says, A person is required to bless God on the bad, just like Kishem, just like he blesses him for the good. Now the Mishnah does not say that we bless bless God for the good, and we should also bless God for the bad as well. No, no, it says just, just like Kishem, just like being just this this word Kishem means equally, just like you bless God for the good, equally you bless God for the bad. Now when the Mishnah is telling us this, it's not telling us for the high high people. For the high level, it's talking to every single Jew, every single person that it's, it's a reachable level. Now, when we think about this logically, how are you going to go and bless on the bad? So, when you go and you contemplate on, you know, on things, and especially in life, and especially in people's situation, we often see that sometimes the good doesn't seem to turn out so good. Like sometimes someone goes into a business and it looks like it goes really well. Sometimes a person marries into a really well family and everything is really well off from all angles. And then what happens? This thing falls apart. This thing falls apart. And before you know it, the whole thing comes crashing down. So really, that good that started off good didn't really end up so much as good. And you have, you know, vice versa as well. You have the opposite where you have somebody that marries maybe not to the best and gets into, you know, financial situations that's very, very difficult. And then what happens? This and that happens. And then all of a sudden the situation turns around and it goes all the way and he skyrockets to success. So knowing that, when we think about that for a second, that the good can sometimes turn to the bad and the bad can sometimes turn to the good, then how come when something good happens, do we say, well, who knows what's going to be? Well, some people do say that. <laughs> I'm not talking about pessimism and, and optimism. But you have, you know, when you think about it, when something good happens, you'd be like, well, is it going to last? When something bad happens, do we say, watch how this is going to turn out for the good? Why don't we do that? And and this is something that we need to crystallize this, this type of logic into our mind. Now, let's look at through our history. Imagine the scenario. There was once a sensitive young man. And this young man, he was born to a son of a great sage. And the father loved this son. The father even went and bought him special clothing. And the brothers of this son were, you know, jealous that this son was getting more attention than anybody else. So this brother, these brothers decided that they're going to get rid of this son. Rid of this other brother. And they went and they threw him in a pit. And then they went and they decided that they're going to go and going to sell him as a slave. And this, this son, this prized son, he goes and says, please, he begged for his eyes. I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. Please bring me back to, to, to our father. Please. And they didn't have any, you know, any mercy on him. And they went and they sold him to a bunch of Arabs. Now, when we hear that story, obviously we know this is the story of Yosef. Do we cry? Do we, are we sad when we hear the story that, that's relating to us every year when we go through the Parashiot? We don't. Why? Because we know the ending. The ending is, is the, Yosef is able to feed millions and millions of people. He brings his entire family down to Egypt. Everything turns out really good. The fact that he was sold to Egypt, it was sold to slaves, actually turned out amazing. It saved his entire family. So we see over here that the beginning looks bad, but in the end, it turns out to actually be good. Now let's look at a different version of the story. Years go by, and all of a sudden, this old sage gets reunited with his long-lost son. After being separated for 22 years, he's separated from his son. He's, he's grieving for his lost son, and finally, he, set, he, he reunites. And, but his son is not just a regular, you know, Joe, whatever, Shmo. The, the son has risen to the highest level of power, has tremendous amount of wealth, and he brings his father with the royal chariots, with great honor, and his whole family comes down. It's a really, it's a heartwarming story. It's really nice. It's beautiful. It shed a little tear of happiness. But was that really a good story? What happened for that? When, when Yaakov went into, when Yaakov went to, down to Egypt, 
and he brought his entire family. We know that's where the exile began. A terrible exile where many, many Jews died. Many Jews were in slavery. All the Jews, except for Shevet Levi, were in slavery for so many years. So we see over here the fact that it looks so great. Yosef is bringing down his father. He's bringing down his brothers. It looked amazing. It looked unbelievable. That really turned out to be bad. And Yosef being sold, which was bad, ended up being turned out to good because he was able to save millions of people. In fact, he was able to save the entire world from, from famine. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live our life? We see the good is the bad, the bad is good. Says Ramat Solomon, what does the Gemara say? A person is required to go and bless on the bad just like they go and they bless on the good. We have to realize that we have to have faith in God's guiding hand. God has a master plan and God's overseeing the entire plan. Now, when we go back to the story of Yosef, how did Yosef cope with the situation? You know, he was the one who dealt with it. Now we see the big picture. And we're looking at it from a bird's eye view. We see the whole thing. So it looks good, looks bad. We are able to pinpoint all the information. But when you're in the situation, how did Yosef go and cope with the situation? So we see that, you know, when Yosef pleaded with his brothers, he wanted, he says, please, you know, you know, bring me back. But what happened once the deed was done? Once he was sold and once he was done? You don't hear not another word of protest from Yosef. And in fact, he had a smile. He was happy. He had a good disposition. How do we know that he was happy with the situation? So we know the very famous, you know, part of the story, that Yosef was being sold, in, and he actually sold to a bunch of Arabs, and the Arabs were selling spices, good-smelling things. Arabs usually dealt with petroleum, the things that smelled really bad. These particular Arabs that bought him had sweet-smelling spices that they were carrying. So Yosef, in the prison cart, he was, you know, he had a good aroma. Now, why did God do that? Because everything that God does, and every punishment that we get is to the T. Now, Yosef was supposed to be sold, but no more than that. He wasn't supposed to be punished with a foul-smelling smell on his way down to uh, to Mitzrayim. But imagine the scenario that, you know, God forbid someone goes, gets, you know, being transported in the concentration camp, in a cattle car, stuffed with, with who knows how many people, you know, just barely trying to breathe. And all of a sudden, you know, the a little, you know, Nazi, you know, SS officer turns around, takes a perfume thing, and does one... One spray in the back of this cattle car. Are the people going to be like, ah, a kiss from heaven. Oh, thank you, God. What a beautiful smell. No, the, the perfume would mean absolutely nothing to them. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm getting kidnapped right now. I'm sitting in the getaway car. The, the fact that there is a you know, pine cone tree by the getaway car is not going to make me feel better. The fact that there's sweet-smelling cattle car driving me to the concentration camp is not going to make me feel any better. So how is it that Yosef it made him feel better? But we see something here the fact that it did make him feel better. Meaning that the only way that you would be able to go and smell it and appreciate that little thing was that Yosef had to be in a sort of a serene state of mind. He had to be calm. He, if he was agitated, if he was nervous, if he was upset or angry, the sweet smelling, wouldn't he wouldn't have felt that. He wouldn't have noticed anything. And in fact, when you're in a bad mood, you don't notice the beauty around you. When you're in a good mood, all of a sudden you start noticing more of the beauty around you. So Yosef, if Yosef smelled that perfume, that smell, it must be that he was in a calm state of mind to be able to smell that. So he was at this point, he was accepting. He was accepting the situation. He says, this is where God wants me. I tried. This is what God wants me. Fine. So let's move on. So what happens? He gets sold to the house of Potiphar. Which, if you don't know the story, it's the lowest level. Even though Potiphar was very, very wealthy, but everything else was on the lowest, lowest level. Yosef still doesn't doesn't get upset. How do we know that? You look at Bereshit Genesis chapter thirty nine verse three. It says, His master Potiphar saw that God was with him. What does that mean that God was with him? So the Midrash goes and explains that Yosef was constantly speaking about God. He was constantly muttering stuff. And uh, you know the Potiphar was like, Hey, you know what are, what are you saying? What are you talking about? So the so Yosef goes and says, uh, I'm thanking uh, the master of the universe. I'm thanking God. And he goes and he starts, you know, he's speaking to God on a constant, on a constant basis. And it's very interesting when you think about his situation. What does he have that he's already thanking for God for? He's a slave in the lowest level and he's there thanking God. You know what Yosef teaches us over here? Teaches a critical lesson that if we're able to go and recognize the divine hand in even the most bitterness part of our life, we will develop a peace of mind. Yosef had a peace of mind. How? Because he constantly spoke about Hashem. He constantly thanked God for whatever it was. He was constantly in a serene state of mind that he, even in the worst situation, when he was sold by his own brothers, and he was taken away from his family, he was able to smell something that smelled good. 
And it goes furthermore, that, and what do we see from here? That the, the, the next pasuk in Genesis, in Bereshit chapter 39, verse 4, it says, Yosef found favor in his master's eyes. That what happened? That his master, Potiphar, appointed him over his household. So now, things are starting to look a little bit brighter for Yosef. Yosef is now, you know, getting promoted. And then we all know the story. Potiphar's wife, you know, makes, uh, you know, improper advances to him. And he finds himself, long story short, he finds himself in the dungeon. He does nothing bad. She convinces everybody else that he tried to do something bad to her. And they send him into the dungeon. Now, when you're dealing about a dungeon in Egypt, you know, a long, long time ago, it's not like a dungeon, you know, it's not like prison over here where you can get a degree and you have some yard time and you're, you're literally in a hole in the ground, you know, and uh, there is who knows what other creatures that are living over there. It's a terrible situation, you know, times and times a thousand to the worst, you know, prison system in, uh, in America nowadays. So Yosef is now in prison. He, now, for sure, if there's a time for him to get upset, now is the time. They're like, really God? Okay, fine. You take me away from my family? I didn't get upset. You sold me as a slave? didn't get upset. I did the right thing and I didn't do anything with my master's wife and now as a reward for all bad behavior you throw me into the dungeon? That's what he could have said. That was one path that he could have started complaining. But he didn't. And how do we know that we didn't? What's the proof that we didn't? We know there's the story in the, when he's in prison that Yosef is sitting over there and he sees two fellow prisoners sitting over there with long faces, sad faces. And he goes over and says, why the long face? And you stop for a second and be like, what type of question is that? They're sitting in prison, in the lowest level of prison, the worst prison. They're sitting over there for who knows how long. Uh, why shouldn't they be in a long face? Why shouldn't they be down? They should be upset. They should be depressed. They should be sad. No, what other option do they have? But we see over here, it says, I'm going to see over here two things. Number one, that Yosef, we see from this scenario, this little story, that Yosef was not depressed. How do we know that he was not depressed? Because a depressed person is not disturbed when other people are depressed. And in fact, they like when other people are depressed. They don't want other people to be happy. There's, you know, dealing with, with people that are depressed or sad. Sometimes those types of people, not always, but sometimes they get really angry and upset and jealous of other people that are happy or, or are successful. So in fact, that we over here, that Yosef over here is not bothered, not only not bothered, but it bothers him that they're not happy, shows that he himself was at a happy state. But there was something else. There's something else that's probably even greater that these two people, their faces, that they were depressed, it stood out from the dungeon. They stood out from the prison, meaning that all the other prisoners in the dungeon were actually happy because these two stood out that they were not happy, meaning that everybody else was happy. So we see over here that even, you know, and one of the reasons that Matthew Solomon gives on is you, you want to know why everybody was happy in a cheerful state in the dungeon? Because Yosef, Yosef was there. Yosef was there and his... You know when you have someone that's in a good mood, makes other people in a good mood? If you're ever in a bad, if you're ever in a bad mood, just watch a baby laugh. Like crack up. You know, you can't be in a bad mood after that. You just watch a, like a baby like giggle nonstop. It just like cheers up, you know, the, you know, the worst moods. So when someone, it's like contagious when you have a good mood. And that's why they say, you know, if you're in a bad mood, smile, cause it'll make, it will change something in you. So, when Yosef, was he himself was in a good mood because we know that's was his that's the way that he lived his life that God oversees everything and there's a reason for everything and he took everything and he thanked God for everything so he was in a good mood and that in turn spread out to the entire prison that they were all in good mood to the extent that if somebody was not in a good mood it stuck out as not usual like you're in prison and you're not in a good mood what's going on over here why are you not in a good mood this is the unbelievable level of Yosef how did he go and reach that but there is even a higher level. And in fact, the highest level of Yosef's faith, of Yosef's faith, I'm sorry, is by the climax of the story. Where all of a sudden, Paul has a dream. And now, you know, he's not able to find the interpreter for the dream. And we know the story. Yosef gets taken out and he is going to go and he is going to give the interpretation for the king's, for the king's dream. Now, when you think about the situation, Yosef is going and meeting with this king. This king is not your regular king. In fact, how do we, he, this is the type of king that condemned, you know, royal minister to death because it was a fly in his wine, or and also because it was a pebble in a uh, in his loaf of bread. Two different, two different, you know, the the person that was in charge of the bread and the person that was in charge of the wine, each were thrown in prison. Why? One of them because it was a fly in the cup of wine, and the other one because it was a pebble in a loaf of bread. So this is a, not a very you know stable king that he's going to to you know go in front. And as he's reaching this you know cruel king. 
throws his his you know his servants into prison for minor things he has this king has a disturbing dream and he hasn't find any satisfactory interpretation and now he's angry he's agitated so he at this point is an extremely dangerous person to be around he's very upset at everybody else no one else gave him a good uh you know a good interpretation now yosef comes in now imagine that scenario yosef is a prisoner he comes in in front of the king and the king is angry upset and he says, you know, so I hear that you can interpret the dreams. What should Yosef sort of said? Yes, yes, your majesty. You know, maybe bad. And nod, you know, meekly, not even say anything. What did Yosef respond when, when he goes in front of this cruel king and says, ah, oh, you can interpret my dream? And, he, and Yosef says, it's not me. It's, uh, everything's, in, everything's from God. Why did he respond that way? Why could, and in fact, about the Seal Solomon says, let him wait at, let him interpret Pharaoh's dream. And then he says, by the way, I don't really deserve any credit for the interpretation. It was really God who gave me everything. What, but Yosef going and saying, he's brought in front of the situation. And right away, what does Yosef say? Yosef, Yosef goes and says, no, 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 it's not me. It's God. It's God. Everything is from God. Meaning that Yosef had nothing to fear. He had this level of emunah. They had nothing to fear. And in fact, this aspect had a profound effect on Paul. Uh, we see in Genesis chapter 41, verse 39, it says, what does Paul tell him? It says, ah, since God has informed you of this, there is no one as intelligent and wise as you. Now I want to share with you something that I'm at the Salah Solomon says, and says something so fascinating. What would have happened if Yosef would have waited until after successfully interpreting the dream and then say, oh, by the way, it's God's involvement. It has nothing to do with me. Says Ramat Solomon, it is unlikely that Paro, that it would have made such an impression on Paro that would have won him over and said, you know, ah, you're so smart. Let me put you in charge. Let me put you, because it says over there, what does it say the Pasuk says? That, oh, because God informed you, there's no one intelligent as wise as you. Meaning that God informed, because God was in connection with you, meaning that because Yosef stood up and says, you know, no, it's not me, it's God, that impressed Paro. And that, Paul says, oh, really? Okay, you're so, you know, you have nothing to fear. You, I want you leading this, you know, this, this, this situation of, of a famine that we're dealing with over here. Says Ramat the Salman, you know why the Torah devotes so much ink, so much words, so much in, in this story of Yosef? Because this is a story of our exile. Things are not always the way that they are intended to be, or the way that they appear to be. There are so many things that are working behind of it. What we need to do is to live life like Yosef lived his life. That no matter what came our way, and again, we're not asking for bad. May God give us only good. But no matter what happens, we live our life with this contentment, this fearlessness that God is overseeing everything. And you take the story a little bit further. Yosef, where did the salvation come for the brothers. The brothers came, the, the Shvatim came to Yosef. They didn't know that it was Yosef yet. And they came and they said, you know, we want to go and we want to buy some, some, uh, you know, some food. Yosef said, no, you're a bunch of spies. And Yosef goes and tells them, um, you need to bring Benjamin. So they go back to, to Yaakov, you know, says, we need to bring Benjamin. And says, Benjamin, I can't. I lost Yosef, his brother. I need to keep Benjamin. I can't, I can't lose him as well. And uh, the brothers, Yehuda step up and said, listen, it's on my head. I'm going to bring Benjamin. And when they brought Benjamin in, they went and, you, you know, I, we won't get to the whole story with the cup over there. Long story short, Yosef, which they didn't know was Yosef, yeah, came and told the brothers, I want to keep Benjamin in prison now because he stole the cup. So what the brothers at that point in time, they were ready to fight. And they were a fight. It wasn't an arm wrestle, right? It was a fight to the death of what's going on over here. And we see over here, this is where the difficulty was. This is where Yehuda, the brothers, they thought at this point in time, that's it, the game is over. We have to fight that there's nothing else that we could do. And what happened from their, from their troubles, that's where their salvation came. From their source of their troubles, which was Yosef, that's where the salvation came. All of a sudden, their brothers were about to fight. All of a sudden, Yosef says, I'm Yosef. I am Yosef. Is my father still alive? Meaning that sometimes we see that all the bad, our, our essence of all the troubles that we go through our life, that could sometimes be the best good that can possibly come out of it. But the story is not over. We're going to fast forward 15, around 1500 years after the story of Yosef. And we know there is the story of Asara HaUgei Malchut. This is the, the, um, the 10 martyrs that we had, the 10 righteous sages that died Al-Kidush Hashem. The two of the first ones were Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Shmuel. And the, they were brought in front of the Romans, and each one, each sage begged that they should be the ones to be killed first, so that they shouldn't witness their distinguished, you know, esteemed colleague go and being murdered, to, you know, brutally. So the Romans, they sadistically went and they cast 
you know, some sort of uh, lots. And Rabbi Shimon was one to be murdered first. And as they murdered Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shmuel was crying the loss of his close friend. And, you know, this, all of a sudden, the executioner, is the, one of the, the prince's uh, uh, daughters stops the executioner and says, wait a minute. She looked at the Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Shmuel was extremely beautiful. And she goes and she says, no, no, no. I want to go and I, I keep this man alive. She, you know, fancied him. She saw that he was so beautiful and she wanted him for herself. And the, the, you know, the, the leader over there said, no, 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 we can't do that. And he goes to his daughter and he says, listen, but I'll tell you what we'll do. He says, we'll peel it, peel off his skin and you could have of his face so you could still see his beauty. And put him on some sort of mantle and you could still see the beauty. And we know the story that they went and they peeled off his skin. And when he got to the place of the tefillin, he let out a, a cry and he passed away. Now the angel saw this. These are two righteous sages that just died. By you know, by the hands of the of the Romans, and you see over here that this this sage Rabbi Shmuel was an unbelievable sage, a big big tzaddik, a big tamid chacham, and he went and he was his skin is being used for this non Jewish princess to be used for her own entertainment. So the angels go to God and say, "This is the reward. This is Torah. And this is the reward." You know what God responded to them? God responded to them, if I hear one more word, I'm going to turn the world back to how it was before creation. Now the question, we have to stop here a second, be like, the angels asked a very good question. Like, why did God respond that way? Like, God should have responded, you know, to to answer the question. So the answer is, is that was the answer. There was once a tailor, and this tailor was known to be the highest level tailor. And the king one time acquired this crazy, crazy expensive fabric. Very, very rare fabric. And he calls over the tailor and he says, I want you to take this expensive fabric and I want you to go and create for me a beautiful suit. So he said, for sure, you know. And he goes, the king tells him, this is very expensive. I want you to use the material very wisely. And he says, yes, not a problem. He takes on the job. And he goes and he spends a long, long time going and sewing perf- the, you know, to, to like the most beautiful suit possible. And... After a few weeks, he brings it back to the king and says, you know, sees the, you know, beautiful suit and the king loves it. It fits him like a glove. It's, you know, it, it, everything is perfect by it. There were a few, uh, you know, people that didn't like this tailor, especially because of his success. And they go over to the king and says, are you really going to let him get away with that? And the king says, get away with what? Look how great this looks. This is unbelievable. He did a great job. And he says, the, the, the people that didn't like this tailor said, look at, look at, look at how much material you gave him and look at what he, he presented to you. Where's the rest of the material? He didn't give you back anything. He must have pocketed a bunch of it. How can you let him get away with that? It's such an expensive rare material. And the king was like, you know what? You're right. He says, I did give him a lot. How come I didn't get the, so, you know, it seems like I'm missing parts over here. He calls the tailor back in and he says, uh, what are you trying to jip me off of here? Or trying to steal from the king? And he says, my, my dear king, what, what are you talking about? And he says, I gave you so much material. Where's all the material? So the tailor goes and says, it's all there. It's all in there. And the king says, it's impossible. It's all here. So the tailor says, very well, bring me the, bring me the suit and I'll show you. And he, the king gives him the suit and in front of him he takes out his scissors and he starts ripping the suit up and the king is like, he's like, this is my suit, I can't believe it. But as he's ripping it up, he starts unfolding, you know, material from here and unfolding material here until he puts everything like a puzzle on the floor and he shows, you see, this is exactly the same amount of material that you gave me and this is exactly the material that I used. This is God, This is how God goes and responds to the angels. He says, there's so many little details that are happening. And in our life, we look like, wait a minute, we're being gypped off over here. What's, what's going on over here? We don't realize that God is putting things over here, sticking things over here. There's different material that's going in different places. And when we go and we say, you know, why do, you know, children go through so much suffering? Why do, you know, terrorists blow up so many people? God could say, like, I can show you how and why they are doing that. But in order for me to do that, I have to rip up the suit. I have to take everything apart and put everything back to where it wasn't originally. So God was saying, I have to go and bring back to the world before it was created to show you why everything happens the way that it happens. Meaning God's answer is there's a bigger picture. Now, the Chazal tell us, our sages tell us, that these 10 sages that were killed by the Romans, they were atonement for what? For none other than the sale of Yosef. So now let's go back to Yosef. Now, when Aisha's Potiphar, her, when her friends heard that she was obsessed with this Yosef, Yosef was a good-looking Hebrew, and she was obsessed with it, and the, her friends, you know, the, the wife's friends were like, I don't understand why you're obsessed with it. Well, you have at your tip of your fingers all the greatest, you know, most good-looking Egyptian men possible. You want to go for a Hebrew? It makes absolutely no sense. 
And she goes and says, you know what? Because you've never seen this Hebrew. She goes and she invites all her friends and she sits them in like a semicircle and she gives them each some, you know, a talk that some, you know, like fruit to go and to eat. And she gives them a knife so that they could cut the fruit. And then she takes herself locked in chains and she brings him in, in, the, in front, in the middle of the semicircle with all these women that are sitting around. And the, when the woman saw the beauty of Yosef, they were so mind, they were so like, like awestruck by it that they were cutting the etzog and they were actually started to cut their fingers. And Aishas Patifal says, you think I'm bad? Look at you. You're cutting your own fingers over here. You're cutting over here your own fingers. You're telling me that I'm obsessed. What happened over here? That I heard a beautiful shot that I want to share with you. That when, Yos- when Aishas Patifal brought Yosef in, for a second, Yosef looked at Patifal and, and he thought of her for a second. And when he, th- when he thought about her, she got a part of him. And now Yosef, because she got a part of him, he wasn't whole anymore. And the the, the Chumash says this in Bereshit chapter thirty-seven, verse twelve. It says, He went and he left his garment in her in her hand, meaning that it was a part of him that was left in her. That was that was she, she got a part of Yosef, meaning that Yosef's soul was not whole anymore. So because Yosef's soul was not any whole anymore, because of that 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 I don't know if we could call it a sin, but that situation, he needed to tikkun. He needed to go and fix the soul. Says Rabbi Chaim Bital. Rabbi Shmal that was murdered by the skin being peeled off, that was none other than a spark and it sorts of what? Of Yosef. He was or sort of a part of a Gilgul of Yosef. A reincarnation of Yosef. And that princess that wanted to go and take that, you know, Rabbi Shmuel for her own, for her own pleasure, that was none other than a reincarnation of Eshes Potiphar. And we see there's a lot of similarities in the story. Yosef was extremely beautiful. Rabbi Shmuel was extremely beautiful. Yosef was held captive among the Egyptians. Rabbi Shmuel was held captive as well amongst the, with the Romans. Yosef had to, you know, they forcefully removed the coat from him. And Rabbi Shmuel forcefully removed the skin on him. So we see over here, there's a, there was all this coming out. We don't see the big picture. We see over here that Rabbi Shmuel came back from, you know, Yosef to go and give the tikkun that happened with Aisha's Petifa, which came with the door, with the princess that wanted to take Rabbi Shmuel's face, wanted to take, uh, use his beauty for her own pleasure. So when we look at the scenes at itself, it looks very difficult. But all of a sudden we look at the big picture. And this is what God said, if I had to take you before the creation, and then you'll see why Rabbi Shmuel had to do this, and we go back to Yosef HaTzadik, and because of that he had to go and he had to suffer this way, then all of a sudden the entire story makes sense. And not only the entire story makes sense, but all of a sudden we start thanking God, even for the bad, even for the bad, and that's how we started off. Now, there was a story in, in Al Israel that there was once a radiolo- like a, a technician for radiology, and he was making a good salary, and one day he just lost his job and he tried to find a job and it just didn't work out for him. And finally he had to settle for a different line of work that he was making significantly less money, more than less than 50% of the money that he was originally making in his old job. That, that's all that he found. And, you know, he finally got into this, in, into this job. Long story short, because of him being in this job, he got into an accident and he ended up in the hospital. And as he's sitting in the hospital over there, the, you know, the, the doctor that's, that's going and looking over him, he looks at his entire thing. It was a serious accident. And he says, he says, listen, you know, there's a miracle over here. There's nothing wrong with you. You could, uh, you know, you could go back to, uh, you know, you could leave. And the doctor saw that this, you know, this person, he was very, very depressed though. And he says, I don't understand why you're depressed. You were in a crazy accident and nothing's wrong with you. And this, Ex-radiologist goes, this, this, techn- uh, this technician goes and says, listen, he says, you know, I used to have a good job and I used to make, you know, enough money to go and support my family. And then I lost it. And then I finally, finally, after two years of not having a job, I finally found another job. And now because of this accident, I'm not going to be able to go back to that job again. You know, you know, even though everything is good, I'm, ha- you know, I'm happy for that sense, but you know, what's going on? Like, what, why is God doing this to me? And the doctor says, wait a minute, you, you said you're a, uh, you know, a radio- radiologist technician. And he's like, yeah, and he gives him his, you know, his, all his, you know, certificates and all, you know, what, what, where he studied and what experience that he has. And he says, wait a minute, you know, this hospital has been looking for someone just like you for a really long time. And he made, a, you know, two phone calls over there. He ended up meeting with somebody and within a short period of time, he ended up getting a job in that hospital for the, for roughly the same salary that he was making two years ago. So, we could go and see the story. Then we can ask a question. Be like, okay, so we see over here, he had a job. He was making good money. Then 
He lost a job for two years. He didn't have anything. Then he got another job, making less than 50%. Then he got into an accident, and then he got another job again, back to where he was making uh, you know, the same amount that he was making earlier. So you could ask, why did he have to lose his job in the first place? Like, you know, just keep him in the first job. So there's something that is so, so important, and I, I want to share with you something from David Asher, that when a person goes and experiences a hardship, and afterwards something good comes out of it, and it appears that the hardship was necessary to pr- produce that, that positive outcome, that person will say, I'd rather, something very, very famous, I'd rather not have the hardship and not have the good. You know, many times we go through hardships and then we have something good that comes out. So we say, don't give me this and don't give me that. I don't want any of the troubles. But the answer is, is that it's not only like that, that if someone goes through a hardship, every bit of pain that was necessary that that person had to go through in their life, the fact that good comes out of it, the fact that, no, there's always good, the fact that we see the good comes out of it, that is a kindness of God. That is a kindness of God, but meaning that when you have to go through something, whatever it is, you have to go through it. The fact that you're able to see the good out of it, that's complete chesed Hashem, chesed from God. Rafishal Shachter once told a story that there was a man from England who flew to America for a one-day business trip. And when he landed in America, suddenly he experienced some chest pains. And when he had this, you know, chest pains, he obviously ran to the hospital. They hospitalized him. And uh, he was there for quite a, you know, for, for I don't know, m- maybe a day or two. And they discharged him after a short period of time. But because he was from England, he didn't have insurance. So they gave him a $20,000 bill. And he goes and he goes to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, I don't understand. He says, couldn't God make it that I get the chest pains in England where I live and I have insurance so I didn't have to pay the $20,000 in medical bills? So the rabbi says, you don't understand. He says, it was decreed for you that you would have to pay $20,000 in medical bills. And if you would have been in England while you would have, then you know how long you would have had, because you had insurance, you know how long you would have had to stay in the hospital to cover $20,000 of medical bill expenses? It would have had to stay a significant amount of time. So what did God do? God in His infinite mercy went and He brought you to America, made you spend a few short days in the hospital, and from that you got the same tikkun that you needed to, that $20,000 bill. That $20,000 bill was going to come out anyways. The question was, is it going to be in England for a few months or a few days in America? There's always two ways to look at life. There's always two ways to look at stories. The Gemara Tanit, page 23b, tells... An unbelievable story. Rabbi Yitzhak ben Yashiv goes, and he was known that his prayers were extremely powerful. One of his students comes over to him and he says, you know, he had wealthy relatives and they were making his life miserable. So Rabbi Yitzhak went and he prayed. He says, let those relatives become poor. And what happened? Those relatives became poor. And then a time passed and the man came back to the rabbi and he said, you know, ever since my relatives became poor, he says, now they need my assistance, they need my help every single day. I can't stand it anymore. So Rabbi Yitzhak prayed, and they regained their wealth. A short while later, the same person comes back and he says, you know what, my wife is not appealing to me. She, you know, she's ugly. She's, she's not good looking. So Rabbi Yitzchak goes and says, what's her name? And he says, her name was Chana. So Rabbi Yitzchak went and he and he says, may Chana become beautiful. And she did, she became beautiful. A short while later, this guy comes back and tells the rabbi, I can't handle it anymore. He says, because my wife is so pretty, she goes and she thinks that she's God's gift to the world, and now I don't have shalom bayit, she's very arrogant. So the rabbi goes and says, let her be unattractive again. Now when the other students heard about the power of the prayer of this rabbi, they went over to the rabbi and says, you know, oh, rabbi, can you pray for us also? And they want to become, you know, whatever they wanted. They wanted to, you know, become a genius. So the rabbi says, you know what, I, I accept it upon myself that I'm not going to pray like that anymore. I'm not going to bother my creator to change change the course of nature for me. Now, the sefer of Kitzes Hashem is goes and says, what, what is this referring to over here? It's referring to that, what, well, all of a sudden Rabbi Yitzchak over here, he saw that his salvation, what he thought was salvation, was not a salvation at all. In fact, it was the opposite. What he thought he was helping, really it wasn't. Now the lesson from here is not that you shouldn't pray. Of course you should pray, you should pray for whatever it is that you want. But the lesson here is that if God did something for you, there is a reason why God did it. There is a reason why God put it in a certain, in a certain scenario. The, there was once a person... Uh, they had a daughter that when she reached marriageable age, they found out that uh, she would never be able to have any children. So they went to Eretz Israel and they went to Rabbi Yashiv. And they said, you know, what are we supposed like, this is a halakha question. Can, you know, how is she supposed to go and who is she supposed to marry? She can't have any children. So the rabbi gave her a blessing that she should get married and they left. A few months go by and all of a sudden, a different person comes to Rabbi Yashiv and says, listen, they have a son who... Uh, is unfortunately unable to ever have children. 
So the rabbi says, one second, he goes and he contacts the first family. And he says, I have a shidduch for you. And they went out, the first family with the, with the girl that couldn't have any children, and the second family with the boy that couldn't have any children. They, get, they went out and they ended up getting married. The interesting part is, is that these two people, that both came to Rabbi Yashav months apart, they actually sit next to each other in the same synagogue, in the same shul. They both had the same weight on their shoulders. They both had this difficulty. And, both, and what happened? That God made them go all the way to Israel to see some great, great rabbi who went and then he connected both of them. Now, there's a few lessons that you can learn from this story. First of all, the rabbi, this particular rabbi, saw thousands upon thousands of people between these two. The fact that he remembered that, wait a minute, there was somebody from America that also couldn't have any children, that's unbelievable. There's another fact that these, the amazing lesson, that these two people sat right next to each other in, in, in the shul, not realizing that they both had the same bur- burden. They both have to deal with the same situations. The you know, many times we go and we live life, be like, oh, look how great the, their their life is. And you don't know, they could be saying the same thing for you. Look how great their life is. And little do you know that many times you're both suffering from the same exact, you know, problem. We need to learn is that God is pulling the strings over here. God is pulling the strings that we don't even see it. And Rabbi David Asher also brings down a story from Rabbi Fahim Shapiro that there were two do- there was a doctor and his wife and they were Dr. and Mrs. Joseph Rosenblatt. They were residents in Florida. And this Dr. Rosenblatt was an oncologist. And he, you know, one day this his wife, Mrs. Rosenblatt, was going was driving on the highway and she noticed a car that had a for sale sign, you know, driving next to you know, next to her. And it was an old beat up car and she decided that she's gonna go and call the number. And when she was telling this story over to Rabbi Shapiro, she said, you know, I, I don't know why I called. I, I don't need a car. Both me and my husband had brand new cars. We have no need whatsoever for an old car. And I don't know why, but I decided to call this number. She, you know, she calls this number and this uh, young man answers the phone. And she goes and she says, I saw that you had an advertisement for your car. And she goes, may I ask you, why are you selling your car? So he says, you know, that him and his wife got married a few years ago. And uh, she was diagnosed with a severe illness. And the only doctor that could treat her is a person by the name of Dr. Joseph Rosenblatt. And unfortunately, you know, they don't have any insurance. So what they were going to do is they're going to sell the car so that they're able to go and pay for the insurance. And she's listening to him tell her. And she's like, Dr. Joseph Rosenblatt, you said? And he's like, yeah. And she's like, I want you to stop what you're doing right now. I want you to go to this and this hospital. Dr. Joseph Rosenblatt is my husband. He's going to see you at no cost, at no charge. And he went and he got, and Dr. Dr. Rosenblatt was able to help save that young woman's life. So look how God, like, just like pulls the string. She herself says, I have no idea why I went and I called this number. I don't know why. There's no reason for me to go and, and find out about that. But for some reason, God put it into my mind that I should call this. And not only that, that what happened, they were driving on the highway. And there's so many facts in this story. It's unbelievable how you see God's hand in everything. Now, I want to share with you one final story. Now, I'll give you a little bit of introduction for this uh, before I tell you this final story. So this is a story that when I was preparing this class... I I knew this story and I wanted to put it in over here and I I wanted to first find I wanted to, to verify a few of the details first I wanted to find out you know where it was and this is a story that you know I wrote you know I've heard before and I wrote it down I have uh, different uh, loose leaves for example just to show you how important I always say that people should go and uh, write their notes so I have here a loose leaf for my for my for my parsha notes and I knew that the story is in here somewhere. And as you can see, it's, you know, it has quite a lot of pages in here. So this past Sunday, I go and I sit with my notes and I go through the entire loose leaf and I can't find the story that I'm about to tell you. And it really bothered me. I'm like, where is it? I really, I thought the story really brings out the point really well. So I said, okay, I looked at a few other places and I'm like, you know what? No, I remember, you know, very clearly that it was a, you know, in the partial, in my partial loose leaf. So I go. Again, I spent who knows how many times going through everything and I could not find it. And fine, so what could I do? I didn't want to say the story unless I had all the details. So I decided the story is not going to, you know, I'm not going to be able to say it. About two days ago, I, you know, the, I get, I asked from Torah Anytime. Torah Anytime is making a very large event, you know, uh, for like a thank you Hashem event, you know, uh, very soon, which is stay tuned for it. And uh, they asked me to speak over there. So I said, fine. And I started preparing for it. And as I was preparing for that speech, all of a sudden, I noticed a story that I, and I found it in somewhere that I 
I put it in a completely different place. And that's where I found this story. And I was thinking about it. I was like, why did God do that? Like how, you know, I, I know for a fact it was there. And I still know that it's in there somewhere. It has to be in there somewhere. But I couldn't find it. And I couldn't find it only until after I said, okay, fine, I'm going to speak in a, for a different, in, in a, for, for someone else in a different situation. And from there, I was able to go and find the story that I'm about to share with you. And the lesson that I learned for that is that when you think that you're doing something for someone else, you're really doing it for yourself. Because it really bothered me that I couldn't say the story. So with that introduction and that lesson, I want to share with you this story. There was once an arrogant, wealthy merchant who just finished a very successful business deal. And he decided he was near the town where the Baal Shem Tov was. And he hears all these stories, these crazy stories of Baal Shem Tov. He says, you know what, let me check this out. So he goes on his way home and he passes by the Baal Shem Tov's town and he goes to see the Baal Shem Tov. And as he goes in, you know, the Baal Shem Tov looks at him and says, you know, can I help you? What could I do? Usually when people come to the Baal Shem Tov, they're coming either for blessing, they're coming to ask advice, whether it's on, you know, Parnassa, whether it's on marriage, whether it's on children, and all aspects of life. So the man walks in, this arrogant man, wealthy man walks in, and he says, uh, to be honest, I, I don't need anything from you. I just closed a very successful business deal. Uh, my children are doing well. I have health. I have Parnassa. I have everything going for me. The reason that I'm here is I heard like crazy stories about you and I figured I wanted to check it out for my, uh, for myself. So he goes and he sits down and the Baal Shem Tov says, you know, if I can't offer you anything, if I'm not able to go and provide you with any advice, maybe you want to stay for a story. And the guy says, yeah, sure. I love stories. Who doesn't love stories? So he goes and the Baal Shem Tov begins and says, you know, many years ago there was two kids growing up. One of his name was Shmuel and the other one was Ruvain. And they were our best of friends. And they decided, they made a pact when they were younger, that no matter what happens in life, they're always going to be friends. And not only that, is that whatever they make, they will share with each other. And as the years go by, Shmuel gets married, moves to a different town. Ruvain gets married, moves to a different town. And they slowly start working on their business and they start, to, you know, making money. Shmuel becomes extremely successful, becomes extremely, extremely wealthy. Reuven, on the other hand, his mazel wasn't shining for him as much as it was for Shmuel. And everything that he invested, he lost. And everything that he tried to open up, he failed. And slowly, slowly, he started losing everything until he was completely broke. He went bankrupt. He had no food to put on the table. He had no money in the bank. He had nothing. And he's sitting there and he's bemoaning his ill fortune. And he's trying to think, what am I going to do? And then suddenly he remembers, you know, many years ago, the pact that he has with his friend. You know, now they live in different towns and not as close anymore. But surely my friend will help me out. I heard that he's very successful. So he packs up his bag and he travels to his friend Shmuel's house. And he knocks on the door. Shmuel sees him. He's like, unbelievable, my friend. He goes, gives him a big hug. And they sit down to discuss what's going on, how's life. And Ruben tells him, says, listen, you know, I have a favor to ask you. All, everything that I worked for, all my money, it's all gone. I need help. Can you give me a loan? Can you give me something? And Shmuel, the kind-hearted Shmuel, goes and says, listen, we made a pact that we're going to share everything in our life. So I decided that I'm going to share it. And he takes his, his checkbook out and he writes a check for half his wealth. He says, Ruben, it's yours. My word, I put it into the, into the bank. You could take whatever you want. Here is half of my, half of my uh, fortune. Shmuel looks, Ruben looks at it. He's like, unbelievable. Half of his world. He's wealthy now. He takes the money. He thanks his friend. And he goes home and he starts investing in the money that he got. And he starts building a business. And he becomes extremely successful. As time goes by, the wheel of fortune turns around. And now Ruben becomes extremely successful. And unfortunately, Shmuel, the kind-hearted Shmuel, loses all that he has. And he's sitting over there. And he's speaking to his accountant. And his accountant says, listen, there's nothing that I can do for you. Everything's gone. Everything is done. And he's he's bankrupt. He has no no money left. Until suddenly, he remembers. He's like, wait a minute. Let me go to my friend Ruvain. I gave him so much money. Surely he will come and help me in my time of need, just like I helped him in his time of need. And he goes and he travels to uh, he travels to his friend Ruvain's house. And he goes to his friend. He knocks on the door and says, Ruvain. He figures he's going to get a big welcome. And Ruvain opens the door and says, uh, can I help you? And he's like, yeah, it's, it's me, Shmuel. And he's like, yeah, what, what can I do for you? And he's like, you don't know. And he's still sitting there by the door. And he's like, you don't know what happened. I lost all my money. You know, remember the deal that we made? Remember how I helped you? Can you please help me out also? And Ruben's looking there and he's like, you want me to give you my hard-earned money? And Shmuel's like, wait a minute, I, I did it to you. And Ruben says, the chutzpah that you have, how dare you, slams the door, says, don't ever come here again. And Shmuel's sitting there, he's like, unbelievable, I just, what's going on? He didn't know, he didn't have anything else to do, so he went back home. He started trying to work in a different business and different business deals. And as the months and the years go by, the mazel turns for him and he starts becoming successful again. And over a few short years, he becomes very, very wealthy, back back to the status that he was before. 
you know, going back to the Ruvain, unfortunately Ruvain, his, his mazel wasn't shining so much for him anymore, and he started losing his investment here, losing investment there, until he lost everything. He was broke. And he's sitting over here, and Ruvain is like thinking, what am I going to do? He says, should I go to my friend Shimon? You know, I slammed the door in his face. And he's thinking, he's like, you know what, I have no other option. I need to feed my family. He travels back to Shimon's town. He goes to Shimon's house, and with tears down his eyes, he's knocking on the door. Shimon opens up the door, and he sees it's his old friend over there, the one that didn't want to help him after he helped him. He helped him. And uh, Shimon is, he goes to Ruben and says, can I help you? And Ruben says, first of all, I want to apologize for what I did. I know you came to me in a time of need, and I didn't give you what, I, you know, what, what really you deserved. I am so sorry. And Shimon, the kind of Shimon says, you know, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Baruch Hashem. Hashem blessed me. And I have, uh, you know, uh, what to feed my children. So Reuben says, you know, like it's a little embarrassing, but, you know, I lost everything. He says, maybe can you help me like you helped me before? And Shimon thinks for a second. He says, you know what? I'm sorry. Shmuel thinks for a second. He says, you know what? Um, okay. I'll tell you what. I'll do it. But this time I want to write a contract. I'm writing a contract that... If the roles were to reverse again, you are required to go and help me just like I'm helping you. And Reuven says, of course, for sure, whatever you say, of course, I'll do it. And they write out a contract, and Reuven signs it, Shmuel signs it, and he gives him, again, a significant amount of money to start his business. And he goes back, Reuven goes back, and he starts investing, and he becomes successful again. Meanwhile, the roles turn again, and Shmuel, unfortunately, lost all his money, and now he has the document. He says, you know what? I heard my friend Reuben is doing really well. He goes over, travels to Reuben with his document. He says, he knocks on the door. He says, Reuben, remember the document? And Reuben says, yeah, what can I do for you? And he says, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I lost everything. Can, can you help me out? And Reuben says, uh, I'm sorry, I can't. Shmuel says, what do you mean? We have a contract. We have this. We made an agreement. I see that you're doing really well. Why can't you help me out? And Reuben says, I cannot help you out. Please stop coming here. I told you already before. Please don't come here again. And slams the door in his face. And this time, you know, Shmuel's beside himself. He's like, what am I supposed to do? Are you kidding me? Not knowing what he could do, he tried to go, he tried to go from different angles. He wasn't getting money. And unfortunately, you know, these two are already older on in the years, and shortly thereafter, both of them pass away. Now, Ruvain and Shmuel get up to, to the Bezdin Shalmal. They go get up to, 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 to the heavenly court. And in there, Shmuel is judged very favorably. He was a big tzaddik. He gave a lot of charity. He helped his friend out in need. And he was going straight to Gan Eden. However, his friend Ruvain, they, they look at him and say, wow, look at what you've done. He says, your friend helped you so many times, you couldn't help him. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't know what I did. I, you know, it really, it's not right of me, I'm sorry. And the Bezin says, you know, sorry doesn't help over here. Sorry only helps in this world. And Shmuel sees his friend, and they, they put on him a very, very strict judgment. And Shmuel's like, whoa, well, why does he get such a strict judgment? He's like, look, what do you mean? He says, look at all the harm that he caused you. You helped him, he didn't help you. And Shmuel goes and says, don't worry about it, I forgive him. The Bezin says, that's very nice that you forgive him, but again, we're in this world. Oh, you can only forgive him downstairs. And Shmuel says, please, let's try to work something out. I, I still love him, even though he caused me problems and he caused me harm. I still love him. He's my friend. I don't want him to suffer. What can we do? So the Bezin was like, wow, that's unbelievable. You know, the heavenly court was like, this, this you know, something unprecedented. So they were thinking what they're going to do, and they decided that there's one option that they have. They said what they could do is they could send both of you guys back down to this world, and this time we'll replay the scene similarly. And we'll see. If Ruvain goes and gives the money now to Shmuel, then everything is going to go good. If not, then there's nothing that we could do. So Shmuel thinks for a second and says, you know what? It's worth it. I'd rather go back down to this world, suffer the problems that I'll have to suffer in this world so that my friend doesn't have to suffer in the next world. And they send both these people down to this world. Now Ruvain was sent down to become very successful. He was very successful, had a lot of money, had a little bit of arrogance, and that's the way that he left this world. And Shmuel, on the other hand, was sent down this world in a fashion that he didn't have so much money. And the goal, the main purpose of both of their lives is one day they will meet. And one day Shmuel is going to ask Ruvain for money. And the, perp- the test of life for Ruvain and the purpose for Shmuel is if Ruvain will go and give money now to Shmuel. So, the day finally comes. Shmuel is a poor person. He's walking through town. And he sees this wealthy, big, beautiful house. He goes and he knocks on the door. And he says, please, can you help me? Reuven opens up and he says, please, can you help me? He goes and he says, I have nothing. I haven't eaten in days. I need something. I need some food. Please, please help me. And Reuven looks at him. And he says, you want to work for my hard-earned money? He says, how dare you come over here? You dirty up my place. And he goes and he slams the door. And this beggar, which was Shmuel, 
uh, was sitting over there. He had no money, no nothing, and he had nothing else to do, so he started walking. Shortly thereafter, word came out that this beggar passed away from starvation. This is the Baal Shem Tov saying the story. All of a sudden, this wealthy merchant, this arrogant merchant, you know, all of a sudden faints on the spot. You know, the students of Baal Shem Tov come, they, they, you know, they, you know, resuscitate him. He comes back to life, and he's white as a ghost. And he looks at the Baal Shem Tov and he says, Rabbi, he says, a few days ago, I had a poor beggar that came to my house and knocked. And I said the words that you just said. And I slammed the door in his face. And later I found out that he passed away. And the rabbi is looking at him and he's like, yeah. And he's like, do you mean that I and, and, that, and him? And he's starting plugging all the pieces together. And he goes, Rabbi, am I that, am I that Reuven? And he starts bursting out into crying. He's like, Rabbi, please, what am I supposed to do? He says, I felt terrible, but, you know, I didn't realize the significance. I didn't realize this was my purpose, of, you know, of my life. I didn't realize what, what I need to do. And the rabbi gave him certain instructions, says, you know, this, per, this particular poor person, which was Reuben in a reincarnation in Gilgul, he goes and he tells him, he says, he has an almana, he has a widow, he has orphans. You have to go and support them. Give them a significant amount of money that they can live out their life. And, of course, he goes and he does it, and he lives out the rest of his life. Now, how many times in our life do we go through a certain test? And it's very difficult for us in that test. Listen to this amazing lesson. Imagine we would stop for a second and think, you know what? This test is the purpose of my life. Maybe someone got me upset. Maybe someone got me angry. Maybe it's your spouse, your children, your friend, your partner, your boss, whatever got you upset. And you want to lash out. You, whoo, you have something to give them. And you stop for a second. You're like, wait a minute. Maybe the reason that I came down to this earth is because of this test. Maybe that's my purpose in this world. And if you stop for a second to think about it, and be like, you know what? I could pass that. Maybe the next time that you're tempted to do something, maybe you're tempted to say something or see something or, or look at things that you're not supposed to and, you're, you're, and you want to do it. And then you, you can't, you feel like you can't overcome that temptation. But if you stop for a second and you say, you know what? Maybe this is the reason that I am here on this world. Maybe this is the reason that God put me down. Maybe this is my test in my life. And with that, with that mindset, we could overcome anything. Not only we could overcome anything, we could also accomplish anything. What we have to do is we have to always realize that there's a bigger picture. We always have to realize that there's something greater that's going on. There's something with a bigger plan that with that mindset, we would live our life with such content, such you know, relaxation that we would really be able to enjoy life. And no matter really what happens, we will really be able to bless God just like we bless God on the, on the bad, we bless God on the good. And just like we bless God on the good, we will bless God on the bad. And my blessing to each and every single one of us is that Bezat Hashem, that not only we don't need to have only the bad, we should only have the good and we should bless God for everything. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com